Good morning again. I invite you to take your Bibles and turn to the book of Jonah. And if you don't have a Bible with you and want to use one of the blue ones in front of you, you can find this on page 861. Jonah's a little book, so it's a little tricky to find. If you go to 861, if you don't have a blue Bible, I don't know what page it's on, so you're on your own to kind of flip around. No shame in using a table of contents. I would tell you that it's between Obadiah and Micah, but I'm not sure how much assistance that would be to you. But in case that helps, that's true. So Jonah, we're going to be looking today at most of chapter 1. Chapter 1, verses 1 through 16. Verses 1 through 16. Hear the word of the Lord. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish, so he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea. And there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God. And they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship, and had laid down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? And where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew. And I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord, because he had told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you, that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rowed hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. This is the word of the Lord. Well, the story of Jonah is one most of us probably know, or at least we know that it has something to do with a ship, a storm, and of course, a giant fish. 
Not a whale, right? A giant fish. But what is the book of Jonah really about? Like, let's move beyond some of what you recall from Sunday school. Why is this book in our Bibles? Some people say it's, it's a book about mission. Some people say it's about responding to God's call. Some people say it's about repentance, including many Jews who recite the book of Jonah every year on the Day of Atonement as a reminder of what repentance looks like. And while I think there's truth in all of those, and there are several themes that are woven together in this short book, I think they all combine to form one main rope, the rope of God's mercy. And Jonah is in our Bibles to show us that this rope of mercy is long enough to reach down into the depths of the deepest despair, the deepest rebellion, and the deepest sin, and give people like you and me something to grab onto. So while no, this book isn't about a whale or a big fish, it's about God and his deep mercy and just who that mercy is for. It's about how we respond when we receive this mercy and when this mercy reaches people we thought it couldn't or maybe we even hoped it wouldn't. Perhaps the key verse to understanding the whole book of Jonah is chapter 4, verse 2. So if you want to look there, I'll give you a spoiler alert in case you're not familiar. This takes place, this is Jonah talking to God after he does eventually go to Nineveh, proclaims God's word to them, and then they repent. In chapter 4, verse 2, Jonah says this, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. So Jonah's issue in this book is with who God is. And the way he describes God here in chapter 4 verse 2 is foundational both to understanding this book and your whole Old Testament. You heard Brian pray that in his prayer earlier. And this description of who God is comes from when God revealed himself to Moses. Moses says, God, show me your glory. Like, I want to see who you really are. So God says, okay, go stand in the rock and I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will show mercy on whom I show mercy. Then God, Moses gets in the rock, and God declares his name. And you know what he says. He says, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Jonah knows that. Jonah knows that that's who God is. He knows that God is gracious and merciful. He's most likely preached that truth. He's like, I got sermons talking about how God is gracious and merciful. So this isn't new information. But this book is about Jonah wrestling with what it really means for God to be a God like that. What does this deep mercy mean for how you and I relate to God? And what does this deep mercy mean for how you and I relate to others? What does it mean for God to be free to show his mercy upon whomever he will? You're going to see mercy in every chapter of this book. You're going to see mercy to sailors, mercy to Jonah, mercy to Nineveh. 
And what we find is that Jonah has very different responses when he's the one receiving mercy compared to when the mercy is shown to those he doesn't think deserve it. So let me say a quick word about the structure of this book. And I didn't give you guys a heads up, so if you want to get the structure slide ready. This book, it's, it's a short book, right? Four chapters, I believe it's 48 verses, but it is masterfully written. It's like one of those great movies that every time you go back and watch it, you realize there's another layer of something going on. You're like, oh, I never caught how that's woven throughout there. There's beautiful structures, clever wordplay, and an incredible storytelling. So let me give you just one example of how this book is put together. So up here you see there's, there's this parallel structure going on in Jonah. So that's A and B. And you look in chapter 1, the word of the Lord comes to Jonah and he responds. Oh, in chapter 3, the word of the Lord comes to Jonah and he responds. Pagans encounter the judgment of God. Happens again. The pagan leader says to call out to God so they might not perish. Guess what happens in chapter 3? Chapter 1, the pagans repent and turn to God. Chapter 3, same thing happens. Chapter 1, verse 15, God relents. Chapter 3, verse 10, God relents. But now here's where the difference is. Chapter 2, Jonah prays to God in worship. Chapter 4, Jonah prays to God in anger. There's this parallel going on. The only difference, what, what I mean, hopefully you're like, that's almost boring because of how repetitious it is, but then wait a minute, why is that different? And that's meant to catch our ears, to say like, wait a minute, I was expecting something different. Why is there a difference? And that's the key to the book. The difference between how he responds when he's shown mercy to when others are shown mercy. But that's not where we're going to go today. Today, we're just going to look at chapter 1, and we're going to see Jonah on the run from God. We're going to see a rebel prophet and God's sovereign power. So look back at verses 1 to 3 with me. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish, so he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. Okay, so like every good story, up front we've got our setting. We get to kind of meet our characters and our places. So we got some building blocks here in verses 1 to 3. First, you meet the two main characters of this book. On one hand, you have Yahweh. That's why it's capital L-O-R-D. It's the God's covenant name. You have Yahweh, the God who is gracious and merciful. And then we're introduced to this guy named Jonah. Now, Jonah isn't talked about a whole lot in the Bible, but we do get some clues about him in 2 Kings chapter 14. There we read about a prophet that it says is named Jonah, the son of Amittai, and he prophesied during the reign of King Jeroboam. Now Jeroboam, you got to know, was a bad king. He, he did, it says, what was evil in the sight of the Lord. However, in spite of that, God was merciful, and this king did have military success, and he did expand the borders of Israel. And it says in there that it was in line with the prophecies of Jonah. So what, all we know about Jonah from 2 Kings is he had this successful ministry. And it was built largely on his support of this evil king's military policy. That he's like, yes, keep going, expand the borders. That's what God wants you to do. Grow the country. 
Now, commentators across the board agree that Jonah would probably in his day have been seen as very patriotic and a highly partisan nationalist. Like he was, he was Israel down to his bones. I mean, they didn't have a flag, but if they did, he would have had it on his tent, on his donkey, whatever he had. I mean, he was Israel through and through. That's all we know about Jonah before we get to this book. Everything we know of him outside of the book of Jonah has to do with him being a diehard supporter of the nation of Israel. So naturally, it would have been quite jarring to him when the word of the Lord comes to him and says, go to Nineveh. To understand just how jarring, you got to understand who Nineveh was. Located near present-day Mosul, Iraq, Nineveh was one of the leading cities of the Assyrian Empire. Now, Assyria was the cruelest and most violent empire of the time. I mean, they would celebrate their cruelty in their artwork. We still have these today. And you have art that shows torture, dismemberment, decapitation. They would sometimes, when they had victims, they would cut off their arms. They would cut off one of their arms and both of their legs, leaving just one arm just so they could mockingly shake the victim's hand as they died. That's the, how these guys are. There's, there is pages of stuff about how bad they were. I'll be honest, as I read through it and tried to figure out what I could share, I thought most of it was inappropriate to share. It was that violent and that dark. So these were the worst of the worst. You've got to get a feel for like, these aren't just, oh, they're not like us. These are evil people. One writer even labeled them a terrorist state. And Assyria was a constant threat to Israel. They were a neighbor, and they had already, they had several times shown aggression towards them. They'd imposed these oppressive taxes. And eventually, after Jonah's time, Assyria would, in fact, conquer Israel and take the people into exile. Well, that hadn't happened yet, but they knew already this is a threat. There's a superpower who's evil and wicked, and they're right next door. And the point is that Assyria was evil and hated Israel. These were, they represented all that was bad and immoral and evil and ungodly in the world. And now God was calling Jonah to go preach to them. Someone compared this to, if you can imagine, a Jewish rabbi going to Berlin at the height of World War II and standing on a street corner to preach. It's probably not going to go well. So Jonah wanted no part of this. As he thought about it, he, he heard what God said, but he, as he thought about it, it didn't make sense to him. He saw only two outcomes. Either I'm going to get killed, or worse yet, that gracious God, he, he might actually show mercy to those despicable Ninevites. And neither one of those is acceptable. So Jonah ran. Now we've got to understand, it's not that Jonah didn't understand God's word to him. This wasn't a lack of understanding. In fact, he understood it all too well. It's like that old Mark Twain quote when he said, it's not the parts of the Bible I don't understand that bother me, it's the parts that I do. He wasn't a believer, and that's why he's like, oh, that's what truth is? Jonah understood it, he just didn't like it. And since Jonah couldn't see good reasons for this command of God, he assumed there must not be any. Like, well, if I can't see why it's good, then it must not be good. And he decided that it was fine to ignore it. I wonder if you ever find yourself doing the same thing. 
deciding which parts of God's words that we don't need to obey because, well, honestly, God, I don't understand how that would go well. If I do what you say here, I foresee this challenge or this is probably going to happen and we play it out in our minds and we think, no, there's got to be a better way. The problem for us is that there's a little Jonah in all of us. And when we say no to God's word, just like Jonah, we start to run. We start to run from God, trying to get away from him and his plan for us. So God said, rise, go to Nineveh. But we read Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish. Now, if you had the map one ready, just to give you an idea of what's going on here. So Joppa is where Jonah is. God calls him to go northeast to Nineveh. And we're not exactly sure where Tarshish was, but they think it was probably the southern coast of Spain. And it most likely, it's like as far as an Israelite would know exists. Like they, they're not aware of anything beyond that. So Jonah is literally trying to go to the edge of the world as far, 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 far away from God as he could. It'd be like if I told you, hey, I need you to go to New York and you go to L.A. Like not only are you not going where I told you, you are going as far from what I told you to do as possible. He's trying to get away from God's presence. The problem was that Jonah was forgetting Psalm 139. Do you remember where it says, Where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend into heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you're there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. As Jonah's going to soon find out, We can't outrun God. There's nowhere we can go that he is not. And yet, far too many people, when when we start disregarding God's word, you know what they do next? They stop going to church. They stop hanging out with their Christian friends. Why? Why is that almost always the inevitable next step? You start disregarding God's word, either ignoring it or flat out disobeying it, The next step almost always is your church attendance. Why? Because they're trying to flee God's presence. They want to go where they don't think God sees them or can't have an effect on them, where they don't have to hear what he wants them to do. They don't have to struggle with the guilt that they feel whenever they know, I know I should be doing this, but I'm doing that. So they check out and they try to run away. But it doesn't work for Jonah. And it won't work for us either. See, the bad news is that we can't outrun God's reach. The good news is we can't outrun God's mercy. So Jonah is on the run. It says there he finds a ship headed to Tarshish. Side note, I thought one commentator was helpful. He, he, he noted that he wants to go to Tarshish and he goes there and he just happens to find a ship going where he wants to escape to. He made the point saying like, if you're ever looking for a way to run away from God, looking for an avenue or uh, a way to get there, you'll find it. Like without fail, that's what the enemy does. The enemy, he said, is, is down there preparing ships so that when you say, like, I got to get away from God, there will always be a ship to Tarshish. If you're looking for a way to run, the enemy will always find you one. So Jonah finds one, pays the fare, takes off. Now he's on board the ship thinking he's finally left God in this unwanted call far behind him. But the story's just getting started because God has plans of mercy for Jonah and plans of mercy for Nineveh. 
And he's not about to let anything stop him from showing mercy to whom he'll show mercy. So look at verse 4. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Now don't miss where the storm came from. It didn't just pop up. It wasn't a coincidence. The Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea. God did this. That word for hurling is the same word that's used throughout the Bible for things like hurling spears. Like a spear, God hurls the wind and causes this storm that was so bad the ship is threatening to break up. In verse 5, then we meet these, these sailors and we can see from their reaction this storm was no ordinary storm. Keep in mind, these are career sailors. This is what they do for a living. Most of these guys had probably been on the sea all their life. They'd seen it all. But look how they respond to the storm. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God. And they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. These sailors, they know they're in trouble. It says they were afraid. Kind of make a mental note. Keep that word in mind, afraid. When the storm comes, they fear. And so what do they do when they fear? They cry out to their gods. See, these aren't Israelites. These are pagan sailors, and they each have their own set of gods. So like whoever their God may be, whatever idol they look to, they're calling out to him. They're, they're trying to look for help wherever they can find it. So they're, any deity they can come up with, they're saying, help us, help us, help us. But nothing happens. So then they try to take matters into their own hands and they're desperately trying to lighten the ship. So they're chucking everything overboard, doing whatever they can, but nothing's working. Now while all these pagans are calling out to their gods, and doing whatever they can to try to save lives, where is the prophet of the one true God? Look at verse 5 again. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. Jonah checks out. Just like he left Nineveh to deal with their own sins, and I don't, yeah, you got evil, it's come up before the Lord, I don't want anything to do with that. Now he leaves the sailors to deal with the storm themselves. He tries to escape even farther. And here's one of the word plays I mentioned. There's several throughout this book. The author does this. Look at the progression. Up in verse 2, Jonah goes down to Joppa. Then he goes down into a ship. Now in verse 5, he goes down into the inner part. And you can't see it in the English, but the Hebrew word for sleeping there means to go down into a deep sleep. Now in Proverbs, this idea of going down is associated with going down to death. So the picture here is that as Jonah flees farther and farther from the Lord's presence, he's going down, down, ever closer to death and destruction. His sin and his problems are getting deeper and deeper. And the question that we as a reader are already meant to be wondering is, can, God, can God's mercy go that deep? As Jonah goes down, 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 what can reach him all the way down there? Well, in verse 6, the captain of the ship comes across him. It says, so the captain came and said to him, what do you mean, you sleeper? Arise! 
Call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. So after the captain comes down, Jonah's awake, but he must have thought this was a bad dream. Because here is a pagan ship captain using the exact same words God had used to call him to Nineveh in verse 2. See those words there? Arise! Call out! That's what God told him back in Joppa. Now here he is on a ship, and the same words, the words of God, are in the mouth of this pagan sea captain, saying, Arise! Call out! Not only that, Jonah's got to be racking his mind, saying, This guy's not even a a God-fearer, and he's a pagan telling me to pray. See, the captain assumes that Jonah's just another foreigner. He's like, well, surely you've got your own God. We've all got our own gods, depending on where we're from and our backgrounds. So he just wants to cover the basis of whoever might be out there. So if you've got a God, pray to him. We're like, we'll try anything. But even this pagan holds out hope, saying, maybe, maybe your God will consider us. Maybe he'll hear us and do something so that we won't perish. Meanwhile, Up on deck, the sailors have been busy trying to figure out who's responsible for the storm. Verse 7. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. So these sailors, right away, like I said, they knew this is not an ordinary storm. They didn't do this every time a storm came up and said, Oh, let's just cast lots. No, they're like, this storm is different. And clearly, in their minds... This storm is the action of a God against someone. Someone has angered a God. They know that. And they're like, who is it? Is it you? Like, we have no idea. So let's, they cast lots. These, the closest thing, think of like dice. And they, were, they would cast these dice. And depending on the outcome, they would single out who it was. It's like, you got two of the same color. Okay, it's not you. One of each color. Okay, might be you. Two of the other color. Definitely you. So they kept throwing these dice, and it lands on Jonah. We don't know if they did it once, multiple times, but all we know is the outcome was in no doubt the lot is saying Jonah. Now remember what Proverbs 16.33 says. The lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. God is in complete control here. God hurls the storm. God causes the lot to single out Jonah. He's leaving no doubt. He wants this to play out exactly the way it is. And now once the sailors know, okay, it's this guy's fault, they start peppering him with questions. Verse 8. Then they said to him, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What's your occupation? And where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. So once these sailors know it's, it's this guy Jonah, they start hurling questions at him. Hey, who are you? What, what are you doing on the ship? What's your business? Where are you from? And notice how Jonah answers. He answers out of order. He starts with his nationality. I'm a Hebrew. This, this way of saying it was actually the way that you would often, a Jew would indicate their nationality to a foreigner. They wouldn't necessarily call themselves Hebrews to each other that often. It's kind of how you would introduce yourself to someone outside of your country. He's 
right away staking his claim of this is my nationality. Fundamental to my identity is I am a Hebrew. Then after he tells him his nationality, only then he says, and I worship Yahweh. He even calls him the God of heaven who made sea and dry land. Now, this confession is loaded with irony. First, Jonah's declaring who he is, and he says, I fear the Lord. Really? I mean, the whole reason Jonah's in this mess is because he refused to obey the Lord. He's living in open rebellion against the Lord. Here's Jonah, and he claims to believe the right things, and he's adamant. This is who I am. But his life doesn't match it at all. There should be a warning to some of us who, does your Facebook status and your bumper sticker and your t-shirt loudly proclaim, I am a Christian. It's who I am. And yet you're ignoring God's word. Not only that, Jonah rightly identifies Yahweh as the maker of the sea. He, he says, this is the guy who made it, the God who made it. And yet Jonah thinks he can run away from this God in a ship? I fear the God who made the oceans. To get away from him, I'm going to take a boat on the ocean. Jonah's theology is good. What he said is right. He is the maker of sea and dry land. But his good theology isn't shaping the decisions he makes. Once again, it's little Jonah in all of us. And we need to beware how we follow in his footsteps. But once Jonah declares who this God is, notice the effect that it has on the sailors. Verse 10. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you've done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. So once it's made known to the sailors that it's Yahweh, the maker of the sea, who's doing this, now they're terrified because they know that Jonah's running away from him. They were exceedingly afraid because they're connecting the dots saying, okay, we know you're running away from a God named Yahweh and now you're saying Yahweh's the one who made the sea and now on the sea is this horrible storm unlike anything we've seen. They're realizing, okay, this God, he's real and he's powerful and if you've angered him and this is judgment, his judgment is to be feared. So verse 11, then they said to him, what shall we do to you? That the sea may quiet down for us. For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. So now that they know that it's Yahweh's power that's doing this, they're trying to figure out how do we make things right. Like, we have no doubt anymore that this God, Yahweh, he's real, he's powerful, and his judgment is against those who rebel against him. So what do we do? How can we turn his anger away from us? What will cause him to calm the storm he sent? Jonah answers in verse 12. He said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rowed hard to get back to dry land. But they could not. For the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Now, 
we don't know Jonah's motivation here. We often assume, this is how I always heard it growing up, we often assume it's basically a heroic gesture. That Jonah was willing to give himself up for these sailors. Maybe. We don't know. But that doesn't really fit with what we've seen of Jonah so far. Compare Jonah's concern for others to that of these pagan sailors. Jonah refuses to go to Nineveh and warn them about God's judgment. When the storm comes, he doesn't help. He's not on deck throwing stuff overboard. He doesn't even pray while everybody else is praying. Instead, he goes down below deck and goes to sleep. Leaves everyone else to fend for themselves. The sailors, the pagan, unbelieving sailors, on the other hand, they cry out to their gods. They throw out cargo. They try to get to the root of the problem and figure out who it is and then ask, what can we do about it? And even then, when Jonah says, throw me overboard, notice, even then, they try to find another way. They don't want to have to sacrifice Jonah. He didn't say, throw me in. They're like, he doesn't, the words aren't even out of his mouth and he's already halfway over. They're like, throw me overboard. You know what I mean? It's like, they're like, no, no, no. There's got to be another way. How can we, how can we call them? So they're, they're rowing. They're giving it their all, but their efforts were no match against the fury of the Lord's storm. So did Jonah volunteer to be thrown in out of a desire to help? Maybe. But it's more likely he told him to throw him in because he would rather die than go to Nineveh and see God show mercy to his enemies. We see something very similar in chapter 4. After watching God eventually show mercy to Nineveh, Jonah gets angry and not once but twice says, quote, It is better for me to die than to live. So we know that Jonah would rather die than watch his enemies receive mercy in chapter 4. So it seems likely that's his same motivation in chapter 1. So after the sailors attempt to row back to land doesn't work. They finally agree to throw him in. They're left with no other option. But look what they do before they throw Jonah overboard. Verse 14. Therefore they called out to the Lord. O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life. And lay not on us innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. Now this is stunning. When the storm first hit, how did the sailors respond in verse 5? They each cried out to his God. But now they called out to the Lord. Why? Because they've seen his sovereign power. And they've seen that he's different than their fake gods. Like they might have been calling out to their gods for years, decades. And they're like, nothing ever happens. Like it's just kind of an empty ritual. How they identify like I'm a follower of this God. But it has no power in their life. But here they see this Yahweh. He's unlike anything we've ever seen. And that last phrase where they say you have done as it pleased you. It's used only three other times in the Old Testament. And every time, it's used in a context that's contrasting Yahweh as the true God who does all that he pleases versus idols who are worthless. Let me give you just one example. Psalm 115 says, Our God is in the heavens. 
He does all that he pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but don't speak, eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear, noses but do not smell. They have hands but do not feel. They have feet but do not walk, and they do not make a sound in their throat. The point is, every time this phrase comes up, it's saying, there's one true God. And because he's the one true God, he does all that he pleases. Every other fake imposter God is worthless. So when these sailors call out to Yahweh and acknowledge that he has done as he pleased, they're declaring, you're the true God. And they're calling out to him to ask him to show mercy for putting Jonah to death. They're asking God to not have his death held against them. Then after they pray, verse 15, so they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. This is one of those that like, I just wish we could, we could experience this. Imagine you're these sailors you're in the worst storm of your life. I mean, we've all been in bad storms, but like, I'm not talking the worst storm you've been in, turn it up a few more clicks on the dial. You're, you're sure that you're going to die. Then you find out this storm that you're in is being caused by this almighty creator. This guy is saying, I, I know where this storm's coming from, and it's, an, it's a God who created everything. And he's doing this in judgment against this man rebelling against him. And then, so that's not like blowing your mind enough that you're in a near-death experience. You come to find out it's the judgment of a creator God. And you're observing his power. Suddenly, when you do what this guy says and you throw him overboard, what you think is to a certain death, the sea stops? Like in a way that's like, you're sure this is not a coincidence. It's not like, oh, that's weird, right? When we did this, it's like, no. Instead, it's one of those chilling moments where like you feel it run down your spine and it makes the hair on the back of your neck stand up. You're like, what just happened? It defies explanation. You've seen and encountered a power unlike anything you've ever known. It produces fear. And that's exactly what happened in the hearts of these sailors. Watch the change happen in these sailors through yet another wordplay. In verse 5, when the storm comes, the mariners were afraid. In verse 9, Jonah declares that he fears Yahweh, the God of heaven, maker of sea and dry land. So in verse 10, after he declares that and they know who's behind this, the men were exceedingly afraid then in verse 16 after the sacrifice of jonah causes the storm to stop then the men feared the lord exceedingly seeing god's sovereign power and judgment changed them from afraid to exceedingly afraid once they knew what this was and who was behind it and they saw wow if he can do this now we're not just afraid we are exceedingly afraid we saw his sovereign power but then seeing God's sovereign mercy changed them from exceedingly afraid to fearing the Lord exceedingly. 
For the sailors, this storm was a means of mercy. While they may not have been the cause of the storm, like it's easy to read the story and think, oh, these poor sailors, these were all idolaters worshiping other gods. That's in our story. They deserved to perish in the storm, but God spared them and changed them in his mercy. All because one man was given to die so they could live. I hope that sounds familiar. I hope there are gospel alarm bells ringing in your ears saying, wait a minute. Because what we see of Jonah in chapter 1 gives us glimpses of the gospel. And yet what we know and see is that Jesus is the true and better Jonah. Jesus never ran from going where God sent him. Sent of heaven, God's own son. Jesus didn't say, "Uh uh-uh, do you know what those people are like? Instead of running away from his enemies like Jonah, Jesus ran toward us. While Jonah's guilt was the cause of God's storm, Jesus was the only innocent one who came to be with us in the storm that our sins deserved. And just like the sailors, we're willing to try everything else. We all cry out to our idols to help us, looking for anything to give us peace and security, anything that will fix our problems. Oh, you got a God? What, What does he do? Okay, hey, help me. I'll try this. I'll try that. Just anything. But our idols are worthless. So then we we try everything to take matters into our own hands. I can do this. I'll find strength within me. I can make this happen. Just have a positive attitude and work harder. I can do this. We throw the cargo of our lives overboard. We give our best efforts to lighten our load. But the storm rages on and threatens to destroy us. Till we're left with the realization that the only thing that can still the storm of God's wrath against our rebellion is the sacrifice of one man in our place. The guilty must be judged. But Jesus, the innocent, takes our guilt from all our running and all our rebellion, puts it on himself. Whereas Jonah was willing to die to avoid his mission, Jesus was willing to die to accomplish his mission. He came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And just as Jonah was sacrificed to save the ones who threw him overboard, we're the ones that threw him overboard. Jesus was sent of heaven, God's own son, to purchase and redeem and reconcile the very ones who nailed him to that tree. Died he for me? Who caused his pain? For me, who him to death pursued? Amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, would die for me? And when Jesus died on that cross, friends, the storm of God's wrath ceased its raging in a way that should send chills down our spines. To think the world over, Since the dawn of time, people have been trying everything else, calling out to every other possible help, and nothing can still the storm. And when the Son of God dies and is tossed into the sea of God's wrath in our place, suddenly, peace. He made peace by the blood of his cross. And that peace is available to all who call out to him for mercy. So friends, I would be remiss if I didn't ask, have you called 
out to the Lord for mercy. I'm not asking if you go to church. I'm not asking if you do good things or if you consider yourself a Christian. Have you called out to Jesus to save you? This weighs heavier on me after my time spent recently with Bob. The fact that, there are, that we are all facing eternity and there is nothing, there is no greater truth that I want you to know then you can depend only on the sacrifice of Jesus in your place for the forgiveness of your sins. Nothing else will matter. When I was talking to Bob at that point in his life, it didn't matter what accomplishments he'd made. It didn't matter how, how much money he had in the bank. It didn't matter how long his vacations were. It didn't matter who he knew or what experiences he'd shared. The only thing that mattered is, Bob, are you trusting in Jesus Christ alone for the forgiveness of your sins? So let me ask you, have you called out to God for mercy? Are you depending only on his death in your place to be saved? If there's anything else you're looking to, if you think that you're a good enough person, or you made it a, you filled out a card when you were younger, if there's any other thing that you are trusting, you're going to find yourself like a sailor, rowing with all your might against the wind of God's wrath. They tried to avoid looking to the one man's sacrifice in their place. They said, no, there's got to be another way. We don't want to do that. We, the, the idea of a substitute is offensive or just, I don't want to do that. And they found themselves actually striving against God. And you will not win that fight. Friends, the good news is that the God we're talking about is a God gracious and merciful abounding in steadfast love. And when we call to him, he hears our voice. And he does take thought for us so that we may not perish. The captain didn't know that. He was just hoping against hope. Maybe there's a God who would listen. Maybe there's a God out there who, when we cry to him, he hears us and he'll save us. We know there's a God like that. And the only proper response to that kind of sovereign power and saving mercy is worship. To fear the Lord exceedingly. We hail him who saves us by his grace. And we crown him Lord of all. We sing the mercies of our king and with trembling rejoice. But what about Jonah? Things turned out well for these sailors. But what about Jonah? He had nowhere left to run. Nowhere left to hide. He had gone down, 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 and was now literally sinking to his death. The only thing left that could possibly save him was the mercy of his God. But is his mercy deep enough to reach a rebel when he sinks that low? Come back next week. We'll find out. Let me pray. Father, we praise you for your mercy. God, without your mercy, we would have no hope. Thank you that you save us by grace, not save us by accomplishment or effort or merit or how much we deserve it. You save us by grace. We are rescued by mercy. Lord, that is our only hope and that, and that is where we find joy. So God, I pray that today your mercy would reorient us. 
that you would strip us of any thoughts of needing to do enough to stand in favor with you, that you would strip us from having to to perform the Christian life. God, instead, help us to understand and delight in mercy. Help us to run to you for more, that we would freely confess our sins because we know that you are a God gracious and merciful, abounding in steadfast love. So God, we praise you for this mercy and we pray that as we encounter more of it in this book of Jonah, we would be transformed by it. By seeing your mercy, would you make us merciful? We ask you to do this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said,